Welcome into the Wednesday Bible Study. Here we are at the Rick and Bubba Broadcast Plaza and Teleport. If you're watching this live or listening to it, uh, you know, around Thanksgiving time, uh, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. And here inside the studio today, we have the people who are truly followers of Jesus. Uh, those are the ones who actually came the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I knew that it would be a big travel day. I knew that we wouldn't have as many, but I thought this would be important if, if I was able to do it because uh, the archives and the traveling and we may have a lot of people listening to this. I am going to try to be a good steward of your time. I'm going to say this, but it doesn't mean what I'm going to do. Uh, my, my intention is not to cover a lot of material today, and we may get out early today. It may not be as long as in the past. Uh, looking over what, what's ahead in chapter 8, uh, I just, just decided we would stick with the woman called in adultery only, and once we're done with that, we'll be done for today. But as you know, if uh, the, the Lord so leads and I get to chasing some things that I don't have here on these pieces of paper, we may still hit that hour. I've done it before. All right, so a couple things I want to hit you with with, with gift-giving time coming up. Uh, if you do not have the uh, either one of these devotions, uh, these are devotionals, 40-day devotionals. We did this one a few years ago, How to Be a Man. This is uh, eight characteristics taught by the person of Jesus or you find in the teachings of Jesus in the Bible. And uh, the, real, the only real answer to the question, How to Be a Man, is... How about when God became one? And uh, what does the Bible have to say about this? This one's called The Pursuing of Christ-Centered Masculinity. Great gift idea. We have it in adult and also in the youth version. The youth just means the examples are different. Uh, and then the brand new one that just came out this year, uh, this is How to Be a Man, uh, the second installment, another 40-day devotional. This is learning from the real men of the Bible, eight men of the Bible, uh, things, you know, the way you should do things. And, of course, they were as flawed as anyone, so also not the way to do certain things using their example in their lives. Uh, this is also available at rickandbubba.com under the store. You can get either one of those. There's some bundles there too, uh, the youth versions and the adult versions. If you're looking for something that you'd like to give the men on your Christmas list uh, this upcoming Christmas season, if you don't already have those. And uh, then coming up, Next year in 2020, we'll have a big announcement of a big national rollout of a, a hub that we've been putting together for men's ministry that can uh, help churches and, and community groups and just individual men and groups of men all over the country. So we're excited about that. Be praying for that. I really got super excited about it because uh, we're not going to make our first deadline because it came under attack a little bit. And I was really nervous before that. It was running so smoothly, I was starting to fear that God wasn't even in it. Uh, so now that we've kind of had some uh, adversaries situations we've had to overcome, it's excited me all the more. So uh, we will have it out. It will be out next year, probably not as soon as we wanted, but we're, we're correcting something we need to correct anyway. All right, so if you have your Bible or something with your Bible on it, before we open with a word of prayer, turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this uh, example that every single person who is here in the room or be watching and listening uh, can relate to. Uh, and Lord, I pray that we glean everything out of this that you intend for us to glean. Uh, no matter how many times we've heard this historical encounter, uh, that we look for something today that maybe we, we weren't ready to learn the last time we heard it, but we're ready to learn now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so first of all, and I've gone back and forth about this. I've sat down. I've, I've prayed about it. I've, uh, I've talked to my wife about it. <clears throat> because what I don't want to do 
is to ever confuse uh, in the, uh, when I'm put in a situation as a teacher and, and when you're leading, because I know watching and listening and within this room, there's, there's a full range of where people are uh, on their journey. Uh, some people who are watching and listening, you haven't even made a decision for Jesus. You're still kind of kicking the tires on this whole salvation thing, and you're just trying to figure it out. Some people are brand new followers of Jesus, and, and now you're now learning the Word of God and the sanctification and the discipleship. Uh, you've got a lot to learn. And then we have men who are here and women who are watching and, and listening to this on our podcast or on our YouTube channel that could stand up here and teach this much better, better than I can, and everything in between. Uh, but, I, but I also can't ignore that if you have a uh, later translation in English of the Word of God, right above chapter 8, it's going to say, the early manuscripts do not include this. And I, I saw that. I didn't want it to be there. I didn't want to. I didn't want to because I don't want to confuse you. And I don't want to. Oh, wait a minute. And um, this is a, this is something I've heard all my life. What do you mean it's not in the early transcripts? Well, it's not. Uh, and so, uh, but I, but I want to tell you, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, most of the people that, uh, that that we would all trust, uh, and looking at some of the commentaries, they're saying on, on one hand, if you go back to the early manuscripts that uh, you know when we were gathering the Word of God, uh, you do not find that the earlier earlier scribes placed this in the Gospel of John. Uh, but as you go on, you see it started being added. You even see there were some asterisks put beside it. Uh, but the good news is that uh, throughout the, the biblical historians, and remember, what I'm holding in my hand has been scrutinized, I'm talking about, in a powerful way. Nothing ends up in what I'm holding in my hands that we do not believe, believe is God-breathed. And so the conclusion from the historians and the others who, who have been, were part of this, they started adding it because they believed that this, what we're going to talk about today, actually took place. Now, they don't know whether John wrote about it. It's kind of awkwardly. In, in the Gospel of John, if you look, it, it doesn't flow as smoothly. Uh, but uh, some, some people say they think Luke actually documented it. Uh, and they ended up putting the Gospel of John because they, they thought that it, it, it flowed. Uh, so there was some discussion about that. But here's what I want you to understand. There is no discussion of any credibility that this event didn't take place. And that's what's important. Okay, because uh, I, I don't want you to start chasing a rabbit on this. But if you're holding one of the later translations in English, uh, you also are going, why is Rick avoiding T talking about what it says right before chapter 8. It's just it's noting, now keep in mind, and this is also a big difference, if you remember when we found out that the verses had been taken out about an angel stirring the pool, do you remember that? And, and we didn't avoid that either. They took that out because they could not confirm that that was actually God-breathed. They said that was the folklore of the area that it had healing powers, the pool, because an angel came down and stirred the waters. And they said, mm, that's not God-inspired. That's not what jo uh, John was told to write. That's what a scribe added later because he knew that's why people thought it had power. The Bible, we don't believe, really says an angel came down and stirred the water. Now, see, they didn't take this out. All they said is, we're, we're noting that we're not sure this really belongs in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. It could have been Luke. Even some people said maybe Matthew, and those said maybe it was John. But we do know that, know that this happened historically because there's enough documentation that we believe it belongs in the Word of God. Are we good? Okay, so let's, let's move, move in next. And think about how many people that we all know and respect and do not doubt their devotion uh, to, to the Bible as the Word of God that have been teaching us this all of our lives. 
And, uh, and, and if they, if they are, are comfortable with it, then uh, Rick Burgess has no issue being comfortable with it as well. So, and plus, they said there's nothing in here that seems to be counter to what Jesus was teaching. And also, there's a clear presentation of the gospel, I mean, in a very clear way, in this very famous historical event. So here's what happened. So we start out with 53, then we jump into 1. And they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives... And then early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst uh, for him to see. So let's, let's talk about what's happening right out of the gate. First of all, John kind of explains the fact that he has no issue with this historical moment because when we get to the end of John, guess what John's going to say? John 21, 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain uh, the books that would be written. So John's even acknowledging, look, we didn't cover everything that happened. We, we covered what we felt like we, need, we wanted to and we were inspired to. But I got news for you. Jesus made his three years of ministry count. And there were so many things done that if God told us to document every single one of them, we wouldn't have enough books. So th this is also another reason that we find that this is maybe John had decided he wasn't going to cover this and then it got covered by somebody else and they ended up putting it in his gospel. But it did happen. So here's what's happened. People came early to hear Jesus at the temple. Now, what, if picture this. You got a picture of the temple and then there's an outer court. Now, this is this is real public where people can come and hear teachers and they can they can hear the leaders of the church. Uh, it was kind of a, a venue. The scribes would gather their students there. You know, like I'm a scribe. I bring some students through and I come through to this court and, and they would stand around and they would expand or expound on what they knew about the law. And they would be teaching almost like you see a doctor when he brings the medical students with him. They said the scribes would bring these students that, they, that were learning to maybe one day also be scribes and they were training and they would walk in this public area and they would expand, expound on Scripture. So Jesus would use this same facility. That's where he would be uh, as a teacher. And, and because it was so public, it was also very easy for these officials who opposed Jesus and his opponents. What they would like to do is come to this place where Jesus was with his disciples. And they said, if we want to really bring a case against him and we want to put him in a bind, he's in the outer court of the temple. It's early in the morning. People are going over to hear him teach. We'll bring our students through. We'll be there. And we know that his disciples will be hanging around there. And if we want to publicly try to, try to catch him and try to disprove his claim that he is God, this is the place to do it. So, so there's a strategy here. And they did call him after they brought the woman there. Listen to what they say to him. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher. So now this could be sarcastic, you know, because really, if you look at it, they're calling him a rabbi. They're saying rabbi. And they come to him and they say, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So they're, they're clarifying to Jesus. They're saying, here's a woman that's been caught in the act of adultery. Now notice pretty soon, because this is going to play a big role in this historical moment with Jesus and this woman and these scribes and whoever else was watching. Where is the man? Mm -hmm. Was he just so fleet of foot they couldn't catch him? <laughs> because if, if, if adultery has taken place, there should be a woman standing here, and the law called for this too, and a man. And they both are supposed to be in trouble. Where is the man? 
Now, that's important because that, that's going to play a big role on what's going to be happening next and also speaks to the culture of the day, which sometimes can be very similar to the culture in which we live in, where there is a double standard for the sexual prowess and immorality of men versus the sexual prowess and immorality of women. I mean, I've met a lot of men that don't want their, don't want their daughters to be tramps, but they don't care if their son's a hound, if he lives like a dog. As long as their little daughter doesn't go laying around with a bunch of men, they don't care if their man goes and lays around with a bunch of women. So that, that double standard, sadly, is still alive and well. When's the last time you heard any man talk to you and be concerned about the fact that their, their son was, was rolling around with every woman in town and they were embarrassed by it? Now, I'm certain there's men that would be. I, I, I think the men, I would be. And, and I remember um, you know, even being asked about that on the air one time, that um, you know, how would I feel? And I said, well, I got news for you. If any of my children are committing sexual immorality, whether it be heterosexual, homosexual, male or female, it's, it, it's embarrassing. They would be, that would, my heart would be broken because they're not adhering to the sexual purity that is called by God on men and women. So anyway, so, so notice that, that the man is not there. So then the, the next thing that they want to do is they want to put Jesus in, in a dilemma. They're so interested in putting Jesus in a dilemma, and you're saying, well, Rick, how do you know that? Well, the man's not here. If this is about, we got, hey, there's got to be justice today, well, then the man would be there. It's obvious they're like, bring her over here, let's get Jesus in a dilemma. They're not trying to, to make sure that the law is upheld. They're not trying to talk about, you know, sexual sins are not to be tolerated by a holy God, or they would have the man there too. All they have is the woman. So all this is about, they're showing their hand, is to try to see if they can, uh, they can get Jesus in a dilemma. They are not trying to punish anyone. They're simply trying to denounce Jesus and put him in a bind. So let's look at uh, 5 and 6. So Jesus, now in the law of Moses, now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And then John, which I love the way John writes, they said this to test him, that he, uh, they might have some charge to bring against him. And uh, so John says, we all know why they were doing this. They're trying to get Jesus caught in something. They don't even care what happens to this woman, and they certainly don't care what happens to the man. John says, we all know they're really trying to bring a charge against Jesus. And where would that charge come from? So listen to this. First of all, we clarify by what they said. Was this woman married? Already married? and was committing adultery, or was she engaged? Well, we know engaged is, is probably right because of, of, of them talking about stoning. Um, it says it, stoning was always tied to a, a, a virgin who was engaged to a husband, and before she was married to this husband, she was unfaithful to somebody else. They would say that she's now committed adultery against her fiancé, and the punishment uh, was supposed to be for stoning. Now, let me be clear. The punishment was supposed to be for both people. And again, the man is not here. And if you want to, to write these down um, for you to go back and look, it clearly says both parties are to be punished. Deuteronomy 22, 23, 24. You write that down. Leviticus 20:10, And Deuteronomy also 22, 22. So death is prescribed for all unfaithful wives and their lovers. But there's nothing there about married women and their, and their lovers to be stoned. It just said they should be put to death. But for a virgin 
who was uh, uh, engaged to be married, it clearly calls for stoning. So that kind of gives us indication this was a woman who was engaged. It was not a woman who was already married. Um, now, certainly it doesn't say that clearly, but if you, the stoning is only tied to that. As a matter of fact, the Mishnah, which is, you know, where the writings uh, that would be there for the Sanhedrin, it kind of their, their rule book, but they said, here's how we handle things. You would find that it said a virgin who was engaged, it called for a stoning. And actually, if you want to get real specific in, in kind of the rules they laid out, if it was a married woman, they strangled her. I, I don't know why we're making this distinction, but uh, that, that's, what, that's what they found when, when studying that. But under Roman rule, this was rarely ever done. Now that the Romans were in charge, see, the Romans didn't just let anybody hand down capital punishment. Not, not while they're in charge. So even though this was in the law, and even though this was in the Mishnah, they rarely ever did it under Roman rule because the Romans didn't let them. So th think about that. See, this makes the situation even more. Th they're really trying to, do, they're trying to do nothing but see if they can get Jesus to say the wrong thing. And what are some of the things he could have said that would have been wrong? Well, first of all, if Jesus disavowed the law of Moses, now his credibility is over. Ah! He claims that he's God, and God gave us the law through Moses, and now he says that didn't, that's not in play. He, he, he's saying what Moses told us to do, we shouldn't do. So he can't do that. So then, 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 then now the credibility is instantly, instantly undermined. He would be dismissed as lawless and even probably taken into their own courts and be in trouble for that. So that's one trap. Now, if he decides to uphold the law of Moses, now he's holding up a position that, first of all, because it wasn't being done much, was wildly unpopular. Don't, don't have in your mind that every Tuesday and Thursday they'd stone somebody. This, this had become increasingly unpopular even among the Jewish people. And you heard me say that the Romans wouldn't let them do it anyway. So, so then not only would it have been unpopular, also think about this. Even if they did it, I didn't know this, but reading some of the commentaries, uh, D.A. Carson said, if you look at the, the historical documents, even if they did hand down this capital punishment, they didn't do it publicly. It would usually just be the people who were, you know, are, are in leadership, and they would take, it off, take them off. And they said, because a lot of times people would rise up against it. He said, also, he's, Jesus has been here teaching this message of compassion, forgiveness for the disreputable, and, and, and restoration to the sinner, a new birth. And now all of a sudden he's saying, you're right, let's stone her. So he, he's got himself in a situation here, they think. They've got him in a situation. He can't disavow the law. He can't really uphold the law. First of all, this doesn't sound like compassion. This doesn't sound like a restoration. This doesn't sound like him saying, I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the sinners. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here for God's compassion, God's forgiveness. But then also what? The Romans. I just told you about that. Jesus can't be calling for somebody to be stoned because then the Romans are going to show up and say, what, what, what do y'all do? Y'all don't have the authority. We haven't given you the authority to hand down capital punishment. So if Jesus pronounced a death sentence, even in the name of Moses, then he would be undermining the exclusive rights of the Roman authority to exclusively hand down capital punishment. Jesus in a bind, they think. So, they, they, so this is what you love about Jesus. So think about how all that you hear all this pressure. 
Uh, I have a friend of mine, and anytime we're talking about things that, that get kind of difficult, you know, he'll do he'll just go pressure. Oh, pressure, a lot of pressure in that situation. And so Jesus, it, it seems like we would all be like, oh, man. But what did Jesus do? Look at the next thing. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, does that look like anybody who's panicked? Oh, my goodness. Y'all really put me in a dilemma here. I don't know what I'm going to do. Aren't y'all so wise and so smart how y'all conjured up this way to trap me? Jesus bends down and starts writing in the dust. Now, this, and I'm one of those people, this has been, people just love to talk about this. I do. I love to talk about it. What in the world is Jesus? Is he just doodling in the dirt? Uh, is he just showing how relaxed he is? It's, it, you know, so, and some of the, and look, this is nothing but commentary. The Bible doesn't tell us what he's writing in, in the sand. So we don't know what he's writing in the dust. have no idea. We do know this. He's not shook about it. We do know that. But here's some, you want to hear some of the great things that people have talked about that he might have been doing? And it's really cool. Now, this is, this is just commentary. That's all it is. But, it, but it's interesting commentary. Some people say, and many have gone as far as to say this would make sense, that he's writing Jeremiah 17, 13. Jeremiah 17, 13. Write that down. Here's what it says. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. Those who turn away from you their names will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. That's kind of interesting. That's kind of cool. If he was writing that, that'd be cool. Bible doesn't tell us that, but that's cool. Some say it could have been Exodus 23.1. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. You know, so he's writing in here what Exodus said about, see, I know what y'all are doing. I'm not going to be part of this. Y'all, what y'all are doing is evil, and I won't take part in that. He's letting them know. Could be that. Uh, other people said Exodus 23, 7, have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. I will not acquit the guilty. That sounds like a lot of rotten in the dirt to me. So, so we really don't know. Let me make, be clear. We don't know what he's writing. All these things are great to talk about. Do I want to know what he was writing in the dust? Man, I really do. But again, you know what one of the theories is? He's not writing anything. I don't know if you ever did this. I did this a lot of times. We'd play around, and you just kind of doodle around in, 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 in the dirt, just kind of, mm-hmm, I'm just relaxing. So we don't know what he's writing, but we do know what's about to happen now. So, as, and as they, look at seven, as they continued to ask him, he stood up. So, so picture Jesus, he gets down here in the dirt, and he's kind of writing around the dirt, and they're kind of like, so what are we going to do? And he stands up. I like that. Jesus is standing up. He's not afraid. He's not cowering. He stands up and says, all right, I, I got an answer for you now. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And I'm loving verse 8. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So picture this. He's sitting there. They're, they're trying to corner him. He's sitting there looking in the dirt. He stands up and he says, okay. Anybody here that has no sin, be the first to, to throw a stone. Then he gets back down. He's not afraid of them attacking him. He's not afraid of their response. And he knows exactly what he's going to say. Because I don't know how to break it to them and to us. He's in charge of this situation. They are not in charge of it. So, 
Deuteronomy 13.9, write that down. Deuteronomy 17.7, Leviticus 24.14. All of these verses, because a lot of times people have looked, taken what he said here, and they're like, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that unless you're sinless, you can't hand down punishment? No, he's not saying that. But here's what it did say in the law. The witnesses of, a, of the crime must be the first to throw the first stone. That's in Scripture. All right, we're ready to stone somebody. The person who saw what they were doing, but you weren't part of it, you get us started, and the rest of us will join in. You'll see that in all these three verses I just gave you. Again, Deuteronomy 13, 9, 17, 7, and Leviticus 24, 14. Can I tell you what's interesting about these verses? Do you know what all of them are dealing with? Blaspheming the Lord. If you're a witness of anybody blaspheming our Lord and trying to get you to chase after other gods, you bring them in. And if you were a witness to it, but you didn't participate in it, they couldn't pull you away to another God, then you throw the first stone. By the way, they took blaspheming God extremely serious. Extremely serious. And they had God's authority to do it. And you see this mentioned, this is three different places in Scripture, and you'll see it's basically saying the same thing. So first of all, keep that in mind. So what he's saying is, now if any of you guys here are not guilty of blaspheming the Lord, and you witness what happened, but you yourself haven't participated in this, then throw. If you stand here uncondemned, he's not saying you have to be perfect, you've never done anything wrong. But what he is saying, if you yourself are sexually pure, and you yourself are not blaspheming God, then throw. You know, th this is why one of the things that's most, most misunderstood, and you'll see this at the end, it's kind of like when Jesus starts talking in Matthew 7 about judging other people. <gasps> and, of course, we have a, a world now that screams, I can't judge, don't judge. Nobody, who are you to judge? Well, what does Jesus say? Be sure you take the log out of your own eye when you see a speck in your brother's eye. Now, keep in mind, Jesus didn't say don't notice the speck or don't do anything about it. He didn't even say don't remove it. He says, be sure that your vision is not clouded by your own sin. Remove the log, which is clouding your vision, to even see the speck correctly. Be sure you know what, you're, what accusation you're bringing. Be sure you are not a hypocrite. And then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Then you can see to judge correctly. It doesn't say never to judge. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 5 says that when it gets inside the church, that God judges those outside the church, but inside the church, He's given us the responsibility to judge if we have people among us who are blaspheming God. But we're to judge correctly. And there's a way to do it, and there's a process to follow. So don't get in your mind, because I know this has been taught before, well, Jesus is saying that none of us, you have to be sinless to ever cast judgment, earthly judgment, down on something that's wrong. It doesn't say that. It says, be sure you're living a life that puts you in the position. And in this case, 
as long as you've not never blasphemed God, as long as you never participated in sexual immorality, then throw. Did you witness it? Are you also not guilty of the same sin? Well, then throw. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that the very person that they claim isn't God, all of them walk away and won't throw? Well, if he's not God, what do you care what he knows about you? There's something going on that they can't control. I've often wondered, every time I've heard this historical moment, if they didn't believe in him, why didn't they just start throwing? There's something that's happening with them that they know he knows. Why did they leave? And I love how it says how they left. Nine, but when they heard it, they went away one by one. Listen to this, beginning with the older ones. Why do you, why do you think that's in here? Why do we care how they left? Well, undoubtedly, since it made the Word of God, that's pretty important. See, that's the thing that I'm trying to do, and I know that there's women that watch and listen. That's great. This is what we're talking about with men of the church. Who were the first ones to realize this jig is up? We've been outmaneuvered, and we got to go. Did you notice? No offense to the young people in the room. Y'all hung around a little longer. The older guys said, let's go. We got, we got a little more wisdom. We got a little gray. This is a no-go. We got to get out of here. But the younger guys left a little bit later, didn't they? They sure did. When I was younger, I left a little bit later. You know, what it means is, these, even though they're in the wrong, here's the older guys once again what, showing the young guys what to do. The older guys left first. And then the younger guys, watching what the older guys did, then they left, one by one. Now, this beautiful, beautiful moment, and this is, we are the woman, okay? Every one of us. She's standing along with Jesus. Everybody's gone. See, see when, we, when you come to true repentance, when you finally get to the point, I'm speaking to my own testimony, because I was a bad, bad man. But there was a moment when it all changed for me, and that's when I found myself just standing along with Jesus and Him looking at me and me knowing who He was. And just that moment, just like this woman, as you're going to see how it ends, where Jesus is just finally saying, it, how much longer? How much longer are you going to continue to live this way? Standing alone with Jesus. All the accusers have left, all those trying to, and none of them cared about her. What they wanted to do is to see if they couldn't get Jesus in a bind. And she's standing along with Jesus. And Jesus stood up, meaning he was still down there writing. Do you love that he just kept on doodling in the, in the, in the dust, everybody was gone? You know what that is, too? Jesus just kind of looked at them going. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like when he talks to Pilate later. You don't have any authority over me. I mean, y'all think y'all going to come in here and y'all have authority over me? You have no authority over me. And he stands up from what he was doing. Now, at this point, Jesus would have been every bit in his right to just walk off. This, this woman, she was a pawn. These men have drug her in here. They've tried to catch me in a dilemma. I've shamed them. 
I pointed to their sin. And it's over. And he could have gone on his way. He could have turned around and started saying, all right, let me, those of you that are standing way off over here, if they were, are his disciples. And said, let me tell you what just took place. Let me tell you why I did what I did. Let me tell you how foolish they looked. But he didn't. It's just one woman. One woman. And he said to her, woman, which as we know, he said this about Mary. This is not a derogatory statement. He's actually saying something endearing to her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? So, so where are all these people that were so ready to condemn you, where are they? Where have they gone? You know, first of all, what he's saying is none of them had the right to condemn you. They don't have that kind of power. And so then she says to Jesus Christ, no one, Lord. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, and here comes the gospel. Because you have to understand in this, in this day, there were plenty of men who had all walked away, just like in our society today, but even worse then. A man could live a sexually immoral life and have a little wink-wink among the other men. But you know who in society could never get away with a sexual immoral life? Women. The women were always ostracized, mistreated, punished. But many times the men would still stay in their role. And, of course, we see a lot of men trying to do that now. They just keep getting caught. And eventually we decide we've had enough of them and, and, and we remove them. But they'll, they'll just continue to walk around and still be held in the place of honor. You know, and, hey, you know, you got this woman, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, shake your head. And now all of them have been shamed by Jesus. Jesus is also cutting through with the move that he just did. He's cutting through the double standard. You know what Jesus is basically saying? Oh, she's guilty. We're going to get this right. You realize she's guilty. And Jesus says, if she's guilty, but so are y'all, maybe we stone all of you. If we really want to eradicate this sexual morality from our society, then let's stone y'all too. Because you, you know who you really are. And you know what you're doing, and so do I. So he's also cutting through that double standard. And he's also saying once again that he sees men and women as equal, in equal need of redemption, and of equal value of the fact that he would redeem us. So Jesus says to this woman, neither do I condemn you. Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful moment. Because the people who came to shame this woman have now been shamed by Jesus and they've left in their own shame. But there's a moment where Jesus says to this woman, I have the authority to condemn you or not. And now he's going to get to the part that's really, really important that's often left out of this historical documentation. And that is this next part, and it's called repentance. Jesus is saying, I won't condemn you either. Meaning, I will offer compassion. I will offer forgiveness. I will offer redemption. However, 
it's almost like this part, there's been Bibles all over the world that somebody's taken a Sharpie and just marked it out. <laughs> Go, and from now on, sin no more. That part's often left out. We love the redemption part. We love the compassion part. We certainly love the mercy part. But if there's one thing we've been talking about in this study for four years is grace is wonderful and we have no hope without it. But it is not to be abused. He says to the woman, if I can Calhoun County it for you, you're guilty. You're sexually immoral. You got caught, but you were doing it. And you do deserve, but so do they, condemnation from God. But I'm God. And I say, if you repent and you go and you sin no more, you won't be condemned. I'll forgive you for it. I will give you a new life. This is not how your life's going to end. I offer you hope and I offer you redemption. And I offer you, Romans 8, no condemnation for all who are in Christ, which we said before means there is condemnation for those who aren't. And what he's saying is, you go and you sin no more. Stop doing what you were doing. And I think many times that is missed out of this historical moment. Did Jesus speak to grace? Yes. Did he speak to hypocrisy? Yes. Did he speak to self-righteousness? Yes. Did he speak to blaspheming God, thinking that we're God? Yes. But guys, we can't miss that he also spoke to sin matters. There's no forgiveness, there's no redemption without repentance. You've got to turn away from the way that you were living, and then you turn to Jesus, and he says, you've turned from sin, you've turned uh, to me, and I have paid the price, and I have the authority to forgive sin. And I will. I forgive all the redeemed. I, f I forgive those who repent. So if this woman, and we don't know, we don't know what happened after this, but if Jesus said he's not going to condemn her, and she now needs to go and sin no more, we certainly hope that this was real redemption, and she never lived this way again. And somewhere there's a man that needs to talk to Jesus too. I don't know where he went. And maybe, maybe that took place. She is guilty, but Jesus alone can forgive her sin. Repent and sin no more. Think about what Jesus said. I have come to save the world. I haven't come to condemn the world. And I will save all those who go and sin no more. We're not talking about, not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about there's never a stumble again. But he says this lifestyle of sin, it's over. The conviction has come. If you have your Bible or something with your Bible on, let's go to Hebrews 10 and we'll close. We will close a little early today. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. The writer of Hebrews says this. This is why I go and sin no more matters. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. That's important. Look, like I said, lost people act like lost people. They don't know any better. 
But the writer of Hebrews, like Jesus, who just said, go and sin no more, said, if you go on sinning deliberately after, after the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Isn't that interesting that two or three witnesses are mentioned here? How much, more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Hey, those are really, really strong words. Anybody got them? Everybody, everybody writing this down? You know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Don't be a grace abuser. If you, if you have received the knowledge that Jesus has paid the price for sin and you acknowledge that and you say you've repented of sin and you want to go to God and you say, you know what, all, all that nastiness that happened to, to, to Jesus Christ who was perfect, all that terrible stuff that nailed him to the cross and the blood that he had to shed and all that that he did for me, thank you very much, but do not expect my life to change. I'll take that gift and I'll abuse it. And you know what the writer of Hebrews says? You know, Paul says we crucify Jesus all over again when we do that. We just keep nailing him to the cross again. And the writer of Hebrews says that too. He says, but there's a fearful expectation for those people of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment? He goes, you think it's bad for the people that didn't keep the law of Moses? What about all of you that saw the full fulfillment of the law and then you spurn that after claiming that you accepted it? He says, hey, not keeping the law of Moses, that's bad. And you know, that, that's the way it used to be. But think about what you've done now because the whole law was perfected and you were, you were claiming that Jesus would make you fully righteous and now you deliberately, and that's key, deliberately continue to sin. And here's what he says. How much worse, worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. You've outraged it. And let me tell you something. There's a lot of grace abusers. I used to be one. Yeah, Jesus, please don't let me go to hell, but sure you don't ask me to stop pitching a drunk. You're not going to ask me to stop sleeping with all these other women, are you? I, got, well, I can't watch this smut anymore. I can't tell these jokes anymore. I can't go rebel rouse anymore. Well, man, I love all that. But I still want you to save me. Do you believe I died for your sins? I do. Now go and sin no more. Eh. I mean, what if this woman had looked and says, man, that was a pretty dramatic little thing I was part of there. So where are you going? To sleep with somebody else. What? Yeah, there's another man down the street. I'm going to go see him too. Thank you, though, for not stoning me. <laughs> I mean, what would you think about that? But we do the same thing. Thank you for not condemning me, but <laughs> don't be bothering me here in my life. See, I'm going to go further as someone who did that. I'm going to tell you that I don't think it's possible the reason why I don't think this woman went on and sinned anymore because I think she truly encountered Jesus. Right. And I don't think anybody who truly encountered Jesus can return to that life. Amen. 
Now, you won't have it all figured out. I, I mean, there's things that, that I didn't understand 10 years ago. And I've been a follower of Jesus for sure since 1996. And I can tell you, I can go back to 96 through 99 and go, well, I didn't. I still had a lot of things in my life that shouldn't have been there. But once I continue to study the Word and continue to be sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, those things came under conviction and they were gone. It didn't happen overnight. If you want to give your life to Jesus today, you won't have all the answers. The day I gave my life to Jesus and submitted to Him fully and repented of my sin truly in my heart, did you know on that day all you had was a repentant guy who was still sexual immoral, still had a problem with alcohol, still wanted to beat people up, still was violent, still lied. But that's not the way I stayed. I truly that day said, I desire to go and sin no more. Now you teach me how to do that. Because you're the only one that can do it. I can't do it through an act of, you know, some code of conduct or a bunch of legalism. But I think you're so powerful, if I truly have encountered you, you'll change those things. You will. And he does. Hey, and he's still changing me. There's things that I did last year I won't do this year. There's things in 2020 I won't do that I did in 2019. Because he's still growing me. He's still saying, now let me take every intricate part of your life and let me correct it. This needs to be under my authority. That needs to be under my authority. Don't justify that anymore. Now that's not burdensome. His yoke is, is, is not heavy, but it is a yoke. He is still, he is in charge. But everything that he takes away from me, he replaces it with something better. Peace, joy, hope. Do y'all realize that I enjoy my life right now more than I've ever enjoyed it before? You know why? Because it's another year closer to Jesus. And it feels so much better. Is my life easier now than it's ever been? No. It just doesn't destroy me like it used to. Because I got him. I encountered Jesus. And, and I will tell you, if you're here today... And, and this has never taken place. Maybe today's the day that everything is moving away and you find yourself standing there with your sin, guilty of sin, as we all are, and you just, it's just you and Jesus. You, you know what Jesus is saying to you? I don't condemn you either. Just go and sin no more. Do you want to be forgiven? Okay. I'll forgive you. Now, won't you turn away from this life that's going to eventually kill you? And won't you turn to me, which is life? And I will redeem you. And I'll take you back. You know, one thing that I love about all the sin in my past that I love about it is that it's redeemed people say, well, you know, you did this and you did that. And I said, not according to Jesus, I didn't. It's not held against me anymore. Did your wife marry a sexually pure man? Thanks to Jesus, she did. Legalistically, was that true? No. But spiritually, was that true? Absolutely. Jesus made me as pure as I ever was. But I'm not going to take that and abuse it. I'll be thankful for it. And then he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, then you'll obey me. Amen. You know, when I started obeying Jesus, when I loved him. When I didn't love him, I didn't obey him. 
Do you know anybody you don't love that you obey? You know why you have a lot of rebellious children who don't obey their parents? Because they don't love them. If they loved them, they would. So that's when you start obeying Jesus. That's when you start seeing that. But keep in mind what the writer of Hebrews said. Hebrews said, those who deliberately sin. That means I'm making a conscious, a conscious effort. I didn't make a mistake. I mean, we've got caught. All of us can get in a moment you know, where you do something. You're like, oh, what was I doing? Lord, forgive me for that. I'll do this sometimes. I'll say to Jesus, I'm sorry for me so stupid today. How stupid. I can't believe I got trapped by my flesh on that today. How stupid. Lord, forgive me. I am so stupid. But it's different to say, I'm making a plan today to be deceitful. I'm making a plan today to go out to where I shouldn't be. I'm making a plan today to deliberately go back to sin. Well, now that's what Hebrews is talking about. He says, oh, how much worse. I think about Matthew 11. Isn't it Matthew 11? Where he's talking about the, the cities. And he's talking about Capernaum and, and Bethsaida. And he's talking about Chorazin. And he, you know, he worked that three-year ministry. They saw like 90% of all the biggies. And they still rejected him. And you know what Jesus said about them? How much worse will it be on you? And he named those three cities on the day of judgment. And then what he says, if Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and one more that, that God wiped off the face of the earth, if they had seen what you saw, they would have repented in sackcloth. They didn't get the shot you got. And my father wiped them off the face of the earth. How much worse is going to be on you for seeing me for three years revealing who I was in these three cities and you rejected me? How much worse will it be on you on the day of judgment? Wow. The writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing. He's just saying it personal. He's not talking about cities. He's talking about people. It's the, same, it's the same thing. So undoubtedly, those of us that know the truth and then deliberately go back to sin, we're not in good standing with the Lord. Now, does that mean it's not redeemable? No, because you're still alive. You could correct that. But if you don't correct it, how much worse will it be on you on that day of judgment? Think about how many times I think about my mama, and even more so than my daddy on this one. You know what used to drive my mama crazy? You should have known better. What you did today was not out of ignorance. You knew what to do and you did the other. You remember that? You should have known better. You know what Jesus is saying to those of us that know the truth and go back to sin deliberately? You should have known better. And how much worse will it be on you on the day of judgment? Hey, Rick, how much worse would it be on you if you go back to deliberate sin than, than the prostitute walking Vegas right now? If she knew what you knew, she would repent. But you knew it and you still don't repent. You still deliberately sin. That's what he's saying. You realize if you were raised in this state, I don't know everybody's situation in here, on my way home, do you realize how many churches I'm going to pass? Can anybody in here say, I just didn't know. Nobody ever told me the gospel. You know what this place is called where you live in this room? 
the Bible Belt. That's the region. You know what your city's called? The buckle of the Bible Belt. How many times have you heard the gospel? Over and over and over and over and over and over. And you still remain unchanged. How much worse would it be on the day of judgment for us than for Las Vegas? Because we should know better. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. And thank you for this message. And boy, tomorrow, having the name Thanksgiving. Let me just say for, on behalf of the redeemed, thank you. Forgive me, Lord, for how twisted and horrible I once was. And forgive me for the years that I was a, a cultural Christian, meaning I did know the truth. And you know what? I just didn't want to fully submit to you. I didn't. And I, how foolish that was. I think of the things in my life that would have never happened and the earthly repercussions that I wouldn't have to deal with if I had just listened to you. Lord Jesus, you were right and I was wrong. But I thank you for the grace and mercy that you afforded me, that you still redeem me. And you still offer me time on earth to be able to advance your kingdom and say to you through the testimony of my life, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that, uh, uh, that my children got to hear a different man because you changed me. Thank you, Lord, that my wife has a different man because you changed me. Thank you, Lord, that this place of business where we stand right now has a different boss because you changed me. And help me, Lord, to never take this grace that you've given me and to abuse it. You continue to refine me into the man that only you can make me. If you're listening right now or you're in this room and you're thinking, Hey, hey, I see it, Rick. I see it right now with my eyes closed. I am standing alone with Jesus. And he's asked me, where are those who want to condemn me? And I say, Lord, there's no one here but you. Why don't you just right now look at Jesus and say, forgive me, please, Lord. The Bible says if you're sincere in your heart, you just say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Please don't condemn me. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And what I've been doing is wrong. And I need your redemption. And Lord, I don't know how to love you. I, I, I'm just now knowing you today, but today I submit to you for the first time or the first time I've ever meant it. And I, I pray that you will forgive me. And now, Lord, once you've forgiven me, will you please teach me how to love you? Because I look to the cross and it's obvious how much you love me. But you've got to teach me how to love you. Give me a, a thirst and a hunger to consume your word, a thirst and a hunger to just talk to you in prayer. Will you grow me, Lord Jesus? The Word tells us that if this has taken place in your life and you were sincere in your heart and you uh, believe in your heart and you've confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you've repented of your sin and you believe that His Father rose Him from the dead on the third day, that eternal death has been defeated. And you've got a lot to be thankful for tomorrow. If you need help with what to do next, you can reach me, Rick, at rickandbubba.com, and I'll walk with you. Thank you for the men that were here today. Be with those that couldn't be with us because of their travels and family commitments involving the upcoming holidays. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and may we live a life that glorifies you and not embarrasses you. And in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Have a great Thanksgiving. Hey, this is Rick, and that concludes this week's Bible study. Thank you so much for being with us. If you'd like to go back and hear other Bible studies or maybe some that you've missed even in this series, you can find them by clicking the media button at BurgessMinistries.com.